So if uh, anybody would like to give his family, uh, he's, he's living, has been living with for some time now, Lyle and Connie, his son and daughter-in-law, and uh, I'm sure you know they would be glad to receive a phone call. Or uh, I believe Denny went over to see them today. Is that after? Is that correct? You went to see Everett today. Yeah. So you can go and visit. I'm sure, and I'm sure that that would be fine with them. So please keep them in your prayers, and uh, we plan to go see him either tomorrow or the next day. We're going to come back into our series that I've entitled "Put the Devil Out by Letting God In." And as I said, a whole lot of people, now they believe in God and they believe in the devil and they realize that, that they want to be with God. They want to be identified with God. They want God to identify them as his, but at the same time, a whole lot of people, they want to still play around with the devil. They still want to do things that, that deep down they realize they should not do. They realize they should be more dedicated, more committed, more faithful, but they keep kind of toe in that line, so to speak. And the only way we can really overcome the devil is by letting God or bringing God, bringing us to God, letting him be the guide in our life. Now, just again, to review quickly, a uh, few slides. Notice that this instruction has two parts, James chapter four, verses seven and eight. First, it says, therefore submit to God. And then it says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now that's a great image. If we could imagine the devil fleeing from us, leaving us alone, getting away from us. And so we would not be under his influence. But to do that, we have to submit with God, if we, if, to, to God. If we submit to God, then we can resist the devil effectively. And that's the only way that we can resist the devil effectively. And, and, and cause him to flee from us because there's no room in the life of an individual for both God and the devil. You're either gonna be following one or the other one. And God says, you follow me and there's no compromise there. And his word brings that particular principle out basically throughout the scriptures. It goes on and says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you then cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we see the two parts to this being played out twice at least during this particular, uh, 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 during this particular instruction. So submit to God, resist the devil, the two parts. Draw near to God, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. We have to walk away from sin in order to walk with God. We can't we can't have part of our life basically following the devil and his lead and at the same time be walking with God. So we've got to make a choice, got to make up our minds. The only way to truly beat the devil is by drawing near to walking with God. Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17, Paul wrote, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another that, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Again, make up our mind. We've got to choose which way we're going to go in life, either walking with God in faithful obedience, dedication to him, commitment on a consistent basis, or somebody might say, well, I'm not ready to make that commitment. You've just made a commitment to walk with the devil. 
because there's no such thing as a middle road. There's no such thing as being non-committal. We go a little bit further, and here's the conflict. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And then we looked at Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25, that lays out in some detail the conflict that we're talking about. And we, are, we, we face this conflict regularly and continually because the devil's always working to try to draw us away from God, to try to draw us into sin, and thereby, if we're going to be drawn into sin, we're moving away from God. So Paul talks about it from a personal experience, from his personal life. And he says, no one, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, in other words, what I want to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, what I don't want to do, that I do. He ends up doing what he doesn't want to do, and he ends up not doing what he wants to do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And don't we find ourselves in that kind of conflict a lot? I want to do what's right, but, but we find ourselves struggling at times to make that commitment and figure out how can I live that commitment on a consistent basis. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do not and now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so if I'm not walking with God, if I'm, if I'm messing up, so to speak, if I haven't made up my mind, if, I have, if I'm not fulfilling that commitment consistently, that's sin. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he expresses the conflict again, the inner conflict that he's dealing with. And all of us deal with this. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, the law of sin. Well, verse 25 is key. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. God sent him into this world, and he is the answer. If we will walk with him, if we will come to him, when we do make mistakes, if we will pray to God through him, if we want to be, if we want to be released from that bondage that the devil has over us by virtue of our just having lived in sinfulness, then we can be baptized into Christ and the blood that is shed on the cross will cleanse us of the guilt of our sins and, and we will have transitioned from being a lost sinner into a saved saint following Jesus Christ. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And so Paul learned the lesson, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4 and verse 13. 
Now, Jesus graphically illustrated the importance of not just avoiding evil, but of actively pursuing godliness. We look in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. And this is where he lays this out for us in some detail. Now, something we need to understand is that an empty heart is vulnerable to the influence of the devil. Some people say, well, I'm, I, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the devil. Well, you can say that, but the devil's got you at that point. I'm, I'm not ready to make the commitment. You've, again, as I said a moment ago, you have made the commitment. You have made the commitment to not make the commitment to follow God. Therefore, you're following the devil. There is no, no middle road. There is no third alternative. It's either or. You're walking with God or you're walking with the devil. An empty heart is vulnerable to the influence of the devil. Now, in this particular text, let's do some reading. Luke 11, verses 14 through 26. Verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus was dealing with critics. He had to deal with critics on an ongoing basis while he was upon this earth. He was teaching the gospel. He was declaring himself to be the son of God or God the son. The savior, the Messiah prophesied in Old Testament scriptures come to earth and yet they kept, criti they kept criticizing him. They kept disbelieving him. They kept trying to, to put him down. And yet he says, look, I've cast out demons. Now in this particular text of scripture, he cast, he cast a demon out of a particular individual and his critics, instead of recognizing the miracle and giving glory to God and believing in Jesus because he was able to do that, they accused him of casting out demons by, by Beelzebub or the, the prince of demons. And Jesus says, look, that, that makes no sense. Why would a demon pass out, uh, cast out another demon? That would be counterproductive to what he's trying to accomplish or what the, the demons under the devil's control were trying to accomplish with mankind. In John chapter three and verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, now this is Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus is using logic here in this particular text. And, and, and we're looking at Luke 11, verses 14 through 26. The critics said, no, you're, you didn't do that by the power of God. You're not who you say you are. You cast out that demon by the, by the, by the prince of demons. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? Why would I do that if I, were cast, if, I, if I were under the control or if I were working with a demon, why would I cast out another demon? Again, that would go against my very purpose. And you say by Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons, that would go against his purpose. We want to control mankind. And so he's, he, he, he's getting to the point, he says, look, what have I done? How could I do this if I were not from God? How could I do this if I were not the savior whom I say I am? And so we look at some examples here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And Nicodemus was in a circle of influential leaders within the Jewish community, the Sanhedrin council, 
who were enemies of Jesus. They, most of them did not believe in him. In fact, most of them wanted him dead. They instigated, ultimately, they and the, and the high priest, they instigated, I think we can say the Sanhedrin council goes along with the high priest on this, they instigated his crucifixion. But there were some within the Sanhedrin who had come to believe in Jesus. And Nicodemus simply lays out the point of logic when he comes to, to talk to Jesus at night. He says, we know that your teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, John chapter five and verse 36, John the, John the Baptist, as or the immerser, John had confessed Jesus openly, I believe two times at least in the first chapter of, of John the Apostle's gospel account. But here Jesus says, I have a greater witness than John's. He was not putting down John for confessing him to be the savior come to earth, the one that God had, had groomed John to prepare the way for, but he was saying, I have a greater witness than John's. I, I think we could say from a human perspective, I appreciate John confessing me openly as the savior, as the son of God, but I have a greater witness than John's. I don't have to just depend upon his verbal confession. Some of you might think, well, he's another lost human being, but he says, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. We're not talking about one particular miracle that Jesus performed, or maybe, you know, we might say, you know, maybe a, a few miracles or something that looked like a miracle. We're not talking about anything like that. He was performing miracles and signs and wonders on a repeated basis all through those three years or so of his ministry upon this earth. When John closed his gospel account, in verse 30 of, of, of John chapter 20, he said, truly Jesus did many other signs, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. How many miracles do you suppose Jesus actually performed while he was upon this earth during those three years of his public ministry? We have no idea. We have a record of quite a number of them, but John says here that he performed many other works, many other signs in the presence of his disciples. I wonder how John would have defined many there. You know, was he talking about another 20 or so, or maybe a 50 or maybe a hundred? How many people do you suppose Jesus actually healed how many do you think he cast demons out of? Again, we have a record of quite a number, but John says there were many other signs that he did, which are not written in this book, but these are enough to prove that he is who he, says, who he said he is. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across here from this line of logical reasoning. John, it was great John confessed me, but I, I have a greater witness than John's the works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. On Pentecost, Peter used the same line of reasoning in preaching to that, multi, that crowd of thousands of Jewish men gathered there on Pentecost. 
He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did in, through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, it's hard for us to, to you know, really wrap our minds around how could somebody see and learn of miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Now, what is a miracle? I know that a whole lot of people, they call, they call all kinds of things miracles. Well, it's just a miracle that, 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 that Johnny passed that test in high school. Or it's just a miracle that, you know, Joan got that job. It was just, those are not miracles. Mirac- a miracle is something that breaks the laws of nature. It defies the laws of nature. It goes against the grain, something that could not happen naturally. That's a miracle. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead four days, that was a miracle. Lazarus was dead. He was no longer alive. Jesus raised him from the dead. That was a miracle. Touching a blind man and bringing his vision back immediately. That's a miracle. That could not happen naturally, and certainly not in that instant that Jesus performed that miracle. And so Peter says, he did these miracles in your presence. You know about these miracles, not about all of them, but you certainly know about a number of them, and yet you still did not believe in him. Now, What kind of illogic is that on your part? We come to Luke 11, verses 21 and 22. And Jesus uses this particular illustration. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, we'd say his house, maybe his business, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which, he, in, in, in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So someone might think, I've got it covered here. I've got security and maybe I've got sufficient ability to fend off anybody who comes against me and tries to rob me. But then somebody stronger comes against him and he defeats him. And so he steals all that he has, divides his spoils, Now, Jesus is trying to get across here. You can't do it by yourself. You have to depend upon God because God is our ultimate strength. When we look at James chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, and we're talking about the individual who says, you know, today or tomorrow I'll go to such and such a city, I'll buy and sell and make a profit. James is saying, you're, you're going to do that all on your own? You think you're in control of yourself to that extent that you can decide time, you can decide purpose, you can decide success without even taking that step, without even praying about it, without even asking for God's wisdom. You can decide where you're going to go, where you're going to end up, what your ultimate lot is going to be. So he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You need to ask God in your plans. We only have so much ability, and that's all physical because we're living in a physical body, but God 
has all power. And Jesus said, nothing is impossible for God, Luke 1 and verse 37. So James goes on and he says, but now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, who knows what is right to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And the wise man wrote in Proverbs 27 and verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And probably every single one of us, virtually without exception, has received those phone calls. So-and-so died last night. What? I just talked to him or her a couple of days ago. Yeah, I know. He or she died last night. Sudden reality sets in. And so do not boast about tomorrow. But you make these plans on your own, what you're going to do, what you think you're big enough and you're, 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 you're self-sufficient enough to be able to, to perform. And so here's the fellow who says he chooses time, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, destination. We will buy and sell. We're going to go into business and make a profit and there's going to be the success. James says you don't even know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Life is short. Life is like a vapor. But you need to bring God into your plans. You need his will. You need his wisdom. You need his guidance. You need his strength in your life. And so when that strong man comes against you, when you think you're self-sufficient to be able to fend off anybody who might try to rob you or take advantage of you, if God is walking with you, that's okay. You're going to be able to get through that or at least recover from it. I still have a big brother. I, both my sisters and my other bigger brother are all past, but I still have a big brother. He was, uh, he was a, uh, an airborne, 101st, 101st Division. He was big. He was strong. He was quite a bit older than I was. Whenever I was with him, the screaming eagle, I was okay. I didn't have to fear anybody because my big brother, my tough brother, who earlier in his life had made some mistakes and kind of lived something of a street life to some extent, he'd protect me. He'd take care of me. Nobody could beat me if I was with him. But you see, he was still physical. Somebody could have beaten me could have beaten him, who was tougher, who was bigger, who took advantage, who surprised him. But with God, he is all powerful. But we need to understand, we are not totally in control. We need God in our lives. We need him to be there with us and for us. Now, an important lesson as we continue with this text, Luke 11 and verse 23. Jesus says, and see, this is where people, this is a, an important lesson that people need to understand. They need to realize and they need to guide their lives in relation to. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Now, somebody might say, well, I know I ought to be doing better. But you know, I, I, don't, I don't use the Lord's name in vain. 
I don't, I don't talk against God. I don't talk against Jesus. I'm just, I just not ready to make the commitment. Jesus said, if you are not with me, you are against me. And it comes back to that principle that I laid out earlier. There is no third alternative. There is no middle road. We're either walking with God or we're walking with the devil. One or the other. You have to make up your mind what you're going to do, who you're going to walk with, where your life is going to be headed, and what's going to condition your life. When Elijah came to the people of Israel, and they had largely gone off into the worship of idols, one of which was Baal, or Baal in the Hebrew. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21, he called the people Make up your mind. Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And that statement of the reaction of the people basically said it all. They were not walking with God when they answered him not a word. He said, get off the fence, make up your mind, which way are you going to go? Again, cannot serve two masters. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust uh, destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question is, where is your treasure? Drop down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's put it in different words. You cannot serve God and the devil at the same time. You have to stay the course. You can't be wishy-washy on an ongoing basis. Now, do we all find ourselves in a weak moment in time and we make a mistake here or there? Yes, we do, but, but we recognize that fact and we repent of that and seek God's forgiveness in prayer and ask for his strength and guidance and wisdom. But we can't live a life from a spiritual perspective of wishy-washiness, never making up our mind which way we're going to go, with whom we're going to walk, who is going to be the guide of our lives. And so you cannot serve God and mammon. Luke 9 and verse 62, Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, you've got to make up your mind. You've got to stay the course. When John wrote this particular letter from our Lord to one of the congregations to, who, to whom the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 were addressed, he said, Jesus said, I know your works. And he's writing this to a congregation of his church, to the Christians there. He said, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot one way or the other but you're lukewarm. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You've got to make up your mind. You've got to stay the course. You've got to make the commitment. Now we come back to our basic text, Luke chapter 11. We come down to verse 24. 
Jesus goes on and says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, and you have to really stop and think about, really try to get beneath the surface, so to speak, of, of these words here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Now that is the unclean spirit goes through dry places seeking rest, finding none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now first think about how that identifies the life of the man that he has come out of. Unclean spirit, we're talking about a spirit from the devil. So he comes out of that man, he's looking for another place, obviously another human being to dwell in or, or some place where he can kind of, uh, kind of you know, come to be. But he finds none. So he determines, I will go back to my house from which I came. He's identifying, he's seeing that man's life as his home. Now what does that say about the man? If that unclean spirit, if that agent of the devil sees that man's life as his home. Verse 25, when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. But then verse 26 says, then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, that unclean spirit, that, that evil spirit has left the man, but he's found no place else to go. So he says, I'll go back to my home. What are you talking about your home? That man's life. And he goes there and he finds that there are no other unclean spirits there. But you know what else is missing in that man's life? God. God's not there either. If you don't replace the influence of the devil with the influence of God, then the influence of the devil ultimately is still there. You're still vulnerable to his influence. So that, that's unclean spirit, that evil spirit, he goes and finds seven more <clears throat> unclean spirits, other agents of the devil who are even more wicked than himself, and they come and make their dwelling place <clears throat> within the life of that man. And Jesus says, so the last state of that man is worse than the first. It just got worse. If you don't replace the devil with God in your life, on God's terms, that leaves you in a real sense, ungodly, ungodly. And then we come down a little bit further. Again, that was, that was verse 26. Now let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. For, but it has happened to them according to the true Proverbs. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I've often thought about this text of scripture. I don't know what could be worse from a physical perspective at least than being lost eternally. I don't know what could be worse than finding yourself ultimately in hell for all of eternity. 
But Peter says, for a person who has come out of condemnation and lived in salvation in Christ and then goes back into sinfulness following the leading of the devil, he says it's worse than if he had never known the way of righteousness to begin with. I've often contemplated how could it be worse? How could it be worse than being in hell? And about the only thing that I could come up with, now there are some scripture texts that seem to indicate that there are degrees of punishment perhaps, degrees of punishment. But what seems that, you know, I could, you know, been able to come up with is you're there lost. You're in hell for all of eternity with all of its torments and agonies, being in that lost condition and to remember during all of that, I was saved at one time. I was going to heaven at one point in my life and I threw it away. I threw it away. We might compare it to a person who has come to God and God has blessed them wonderfully in a number of different ways. And they were enjoying those blessings. But then for whatever reason, they succumbed to the temptations of the devil, maybe through other people's influence, whatever. And they walked away from those blessings. They walked away from them and their life started spiraling downward. I know a lady who was a faithful, dedicated Christian. She decided she was married when she was married to a fine Christian man, had beautiful son. And then she decided she was no longer a believer in God. From that point, her life started spiraling downward. She walked away from her family, basically, and her life got worse and worse and worse and more and more disjointed. And that's a true story. I know all those individuals. The dog eats something, makes him sick. He vomits it up. Then he goes back and eats up what he just vomited. The sow, having been washed, as soon as the farmer lets him go, he goes right back to the mud hole. Now that's physical illustrations of a spiritual principle. We don't ever want to be identified like that. For sure, if you're not walking with God, then the devil will have his way with you. And you can deny that up and down, you can shout it loud and long, but if you're not walking with God, you're already under the devil's influence and he'll have his way with you. You can make the choice, you can make up your mind and say, no, I don't want to risk it. I want to walk with God through Jesus Christ. I'm ready to repent of my sins. I'm ready to be baptized for the remission of my sins. We'll help you with that this very evening. Or maybe you're at the point where you say, please, I need to study, I need to learn more. Help me to see what God wants me to do. We'll study with you if you'll ask us. Or maybe you're a Christian who has been, been saved. You've come away from the devil, but then you slip back into his 
control or his influence. You can pray about that. You can repent of your sin and ask God's forgiveness in prayer. And we'd love to pray with you and for you. Or again, help you study and learn what God wants you to do. You don't have to stay lost. You don't have to stay away from God. You make the choice every day. If you need to come, come right now as we stand together and sing.